want to take a minute and we're going to move toward the book of Ezra. But as we do, I want to take a little bit of time to lay some context to where we understand where we are within this book. We are at a transitional point right now as we turn to chapter 7 where we're moving toward Ezra himself coming to Jerusalem to establish or essentially solidify the teachings of the Mosaic Law. Now, to help you understand, during this time, the Mosaic Law was essentially the Bible at that time. That's what the people of God had to understand who God was. Ezra's purpose in this is to help the people of God in their relationship and their devotion to Him. But he's also going to be challenged, as we've understood, because the minute that you move forward to work for God, the enemy is going to be right behind trying to distort and discourage what's going on. So, as we move into these next chapters in this book, Ezra is the writer, but he now essentially becomes the key character that God is using to draw people to himself. And that's what we want to show you this morning before we dive into the book. Now, backing way up before we dive into this part of the book, the purpose of Ezra, for those of you that are newer, or for those of you that might not have been here for a couple of the series, is simply this. Ezra is a book that is talking about how God, in his providence, reestablishes the people of God through his covenant faithfulness to worship in him. Star Wars reference a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the prophet Isaiah came forward to the people of God and recognized that little by little what was happening is, is that uh, there was a little bit of God and a whole lot of the world beginning to permeate their worship. Isaiah comes forward and says, hey, this is an issue. This is a problem. If this continues, something's going to happen, and it's not going to be good. What's going to happen is I'm going to raise up another king who's going to conquer you and send you into exile. However, because I love you and I'm a God who is covenantly faithful to you, that period is going to last for 70 years. And then I will raise up another king who will conquer the first king and bring you back from exile to your land. Interestingly enough, Isaiah says this, the people of God, you would hope, would listen. But they don't. And time goes by and people think that Isaiah was crazy. But lo and behold, as God said... King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army come forward and conquer the people of God. And they move them from their home into exile, out from their land, for a period of, guess what, 70 years. Along comes King Cyrus with the Medo-Persian army, conquers the Babylonians, and under Cyrus he issues a decree that the people of God can return back to their land. That's where we start with the book of Ezra. The first six chapters essentially are the people of God moving back to their land and reestablishing the temple of where they worshipped. Now in this, they start to get their priorities right. 
what they do when they get back is they start to rebuild the altar, the place of worship. But interestingly enough, as they start to rebuild this altar, what I would call is people that sort of talk the talk, but don't walk the walk, come forward and they say, hey, we noticed that you're rebuilding the altar and the temple. Let us help you with that. We've got resources, we've got talent, and we've got funds. But the problem with this is those people were the very ones who were obstructing the purity of worship of God before. And so Zerubbabel, who is the individual who leads the first, essentially, return from exile back to Jerusalem, says this, absolutely not. Thank you, but no thank you. And you would think that in that, as he honors God, what? All would go well. But to be honest with you, things go from hard to worse. Because Zerubbabel honors God, he and the people of God encounter great opposition. And so for the next couple of chapters, we discover the opposition that comes because they have remained faithful to him. Interestingly enough, there, over a period of time, as they're trying to reestablish the temple so that they can worship God as they desire and as they should, according to the law, what occurs is the opposition spreads to the point that the people of God have to trust that God will work for them. What they do after a period of time is a new king comes forward. His name is Darius. And the people of God essentially turn and they say, hey, we understand that there are people out here who are against us and saying that we are working against the kingdom, the little k kingdom of which you are king. But we want to let you know that all we're doing is we're following a decree that was made by Cyrus to honor our God. You will find, if you do a search, that decree. And they completely trust God to work it out for them. I've talked before that when they say this, there's a couple of things that occur, or could occur. Number one, it's possible that that decree could never be found. It's possible that that decree could be found and read, and Darius could look at it and say, you know what, politically, this doesn't look good, so even though this is what it says right now, this is what we're going to do. But interestingly enough, they go, they find the decree, God works through Darius to say what was said by Cyrus will be done. And the people of God who had experienced great opposition for 16 to 18 years in trying to rebuild the temple, now have the second sort of affirmation by God, not Darius, because God is using Darius to establish his people to move forward to rebuild the temple and the place of worship. Last week, we discovered God's perfect timing. They're able to do so to what? 
celebrate Passover. Now, Passover in Scripture was set at an appropriate time. If you missed it, you had to wait a whole nother year. And so as things are going, you can imagine that the people of God are saying, is this going to be the time, God, that you work? Is this going to be it? Or are we going to have to wait a whole nother year until we can truly worship and celebrate you? And like that, God pulls it all off. And they're able to celebrate Passover. And now we transition. So chapter 6 ends and chapter 7 begins. And that's where we are in this book. Now, Ezra, the writer of this book, is the main character. And he's the one that comes forward. So here's what I want to ask this morning. We've talked a lot about challenging times and enduring opposition for our faith. In a moment, as we read, we're going to see this character, Ezra, come forward, and we're going to hear that the hand of God was upon him. And so, the question we're going to ask this morning is, during challenging times in life, how can I know that God's hand is upon me? It's a great question. I don't know full details of some of your lives. I know some. What I can tell you is I know that several of you have gone, are going through, or will go through challenging times. I know for me, personally, there have been moments where life has been great, we're cruising on cruise control, and then all of a sudden, life happens, and you go through challenging times. And to be honest with you, as a pastor, as much as I know and I love God, there are those moments where you question, you wonder, you say, God, where are you? What are you doing? This isn't what I thought. This isn't what I desire. And you wonder if his hand is there. And interestingly enough, what I want to tell you is, as we look at this book, as we see the chaos that ensues, through it all, as you transition, God's hand is upon God's people. And particularly what we discover is God's hand is upon Ezra. Ezra has a great challenge. Ezra's challenge, now that the worship of God's people has been established, his challenge is to continue to drive the heart of God's people to authentic worship and a desire for the Mosaic Law. Fast forward today, the desire for worship and God's holy word, the Bible. That's what Ezra's all about. So, how do we know? How do we know if God's hand is upon us? Well, let's turn to chapter 7. We're going to be introduced, essentially, to the character Ezra. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Shariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerariah, the son of Uzi, or Uzziah, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Explain that in just a minute. 
This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. We transition essentially into a new stage within this book. Ezra comes forward. He is now essentially the man that is leading the people of God to deeper worship. To help you understand this, I'm going to do what I can to give sort of a timeline so we can see what's transitioned and where we are. First and foremost, in and around 538 B.C. is the first return of God's people back to Jerusalem. That occurs under the leadership, if you remember, of a gentleman by the name of Zerubbabel. He is the one who brings God's people back. He is also the one that basically says, thank you to the Samaritan people, the ones that are sort of look good on the outside, but their heart isn't pure on the inside, and says, nope, we don't need your help. And of course, the friendly Samaritans, the minute that they don't need the help of God, become a little bit unfriendly. And that's where the opposition begins. That continues to occur. We have the decree made by Cyrus. We have another king that comes in, and then we have Darius, where essentially the temple is established, things move forward, and the people of God are confirmed. Now, 516, approximately, most likely, is when the temple is rebuilt. Where are we now? Interesting enough, about 57 years later is where we are right now. Okay? 458 BC, approximately, is what we would call the second return of God's people under the leadership of Ezra. That's the time frame that we are in. Hence, a new king. Artaxerxes and his reign. Little bit complicated, but I will do what I can to provide a timeline if you are interested to kind of help out and give you sort of what's happening over an expanded period of time. Ezra is now the leader of the second return. He is the one, as I've said before, he was establishing a deeper sense of worship for the people of God. And so, earlier, we've asked, during challenging times in life, how can I know that God's hand is upon me? We're going to look, essentially, at what we see in Ezra, as well as what God is doing through him. And so, first and foremost, what I want to let you know, as we see in verses 1 through 5, is that during challenging times, God raises up individuals to accomplish his will. 
One of the things that I will tell you is the church will always go through challenging times. Now, in this instance, God raises up a particular individual to lead the people of God closer to him. At the right time, at the right place, he brings up the right person to bring about a deeper sense of worship. We go through and we hear all of these names that are hard to pronounce, right? You wonder why they are there. The reason that they are there is the end. It's to demonstrate that Ezra is in the line of Aaron, Moses' brother, hence able to be one of the priests versed in the law. It's authenticating him as an individual who has the qualities and the character and the hand of God to lead the people of God to a deeper heart of worship. And so, what I want to tell you is this. At times, at moments, in times of hardship, God will raise up particular leaders to accomplish his will. My question to you is simply this. What if that person is you? Would you hear the call? Or would you turn and run? Ezra faces a great challenge, and that's to solidify the people of God in their heart of worship, to authenticate who God is, and to continue a heart of worship within the people of God. And so if God calls you out and says, hey, I want you to lead here, I want you to do this, lovingly, not judgmentally, my question to you is this, how will you respond? We see the line. We see, essentially, right at the end, in verse 5, the son of Eshua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. The right time, at the right moment, God raises up the right person. Always trust him. Always know that God is always working, searching, looking, and providing. Because his church will continue. His church will move forward until Christ comes home. God hasn't forgotten. God isn't weak. God isn't out of control. God hasn't gone on vacation. God hasn't said, you know what, I had my hand in it, but it's gotten so bad, I'm just going to back away and let the world turn to chaos. God's hand is upon us. At the right time, at the right place, God raises up leaders to guide and direct the church toward him. Is that you? Could it be you in some small way? The other thing that I want to encourage you is, is this. In verse 6, we see God's hand will be upon those who seek the Lord's uh, will and are faithful to him. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of his God was on him. 
The simplest way to say this is Ezra was a man after God's own heart. He sought the Lord's will. He wanted to be faithful to him. He desired for God to be exalted. Hence, God's hand was upon him. And so lovingly, what I want to tell you is this. If God is calling you to some aspect of leadership to bring people to him, to demonstrate the love of God, what I want to ask you is simply this. Are you seeking his will? Not your will, but his will. And are you faithful to him? Now, what I love about God is none of us are perfect. Sometimes we falter. Sometimes we struggle. But faithfulness is an aspect of continuing to trust despite what is not seen. Sometimes we can see clearly. Sometimes the road ahead of us in leadership is very clear. This is exactly where we need to go. But friends, other times the road isn't clear. But what I'll tell you in leadership, when the road isn't clear, rather than trying to press ahead, the better leader waits for God to give the direction. That's being faithful. And so friends, in whatever it is that God is calling you to, because we're all leaders in our own way. Yes, I pastor this church. Yes, Keith does a great job leading and connecting people and working with our youth. But we're not the only leaders here. We're called to be pastors. But as we look in the church, all of us are leaders in our own right. And God has given us all different gifts to accomplish his will. So what I want to ask is this, if we're going through a challenging time, do we cower, do we wonder, or will we, will we be raised up to accomplish his will? And if we are, I want to ask, are you seeking his will and are you faithful to him? Here's what I want to tell you. This is a heart check, but I'm going to go back the other way. The heart check that I want to ask is this, when you experience hardship, do you blame others for your pain? Or do you allow God to soften your heart as you turn your focus away from yourself and more toward God? Ezra's going to go through challenges. We're going to see that in these next couple of chapters. We're going to see that he will struggle. We're going to see that the people of God will struggle. But what we also see is Ezra keeps going to God. He keeps seeking after God. He continues to remain faithful to him. Hence, God's hand is upon him. Let me turn it another way. Some of you might be going through a hard time right now. Some of you might be struggling. Some of you might have something that's happened to you that's out of your control. You're going along life. You're doing the best that you can. And life happens. And you say, where is God? What is God doing? Is his hand upon me? And what I want to tell you is this. Ask yourself two simple questions. Are you seeking his will? And are you faithful to him? Are you seeking his will? And are you faithful to him? And lovingly, what I want to tell you is even though the chaos may still ensue, as we will see in this book, God's hand is upon you. Don't ever forget that. God's hand is upon you if you're faithful and you're seeking his will. The other thing that I love about this is you don't do it alone. None of us do it alone. We continue on 
And we notice as we transition, so here's Ezra, but then boom. Verse 7, some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem on the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. Helping us understand, helping us know essentially the timeline of how God worked. But also, it wasn't Ezra went alone. No. Other people went with Ezra. This is essentially the second return. We see priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, etc., etc. And so, where am I going with this? God will bring about others to surround and aid you in accomplishing his will. Yes, Ezra essentially was the main leader. He was the main person that was doing this job. But what we don't see is God raised up Ezra and said, good luck, do it on your, on your own. There's no other support. Other people come along. Other people provide. Other people encourage. And so the other thing that I want to encourage you in, in leadership, is this. Is to turn to others for help. Turn to others for aid. I have certain strengths. I also have a lot of weaknesses. In my weaknesses, what? Turn to others who have strength. I'm going to just give a quick, quick analogy here. I couldn't have done what we did last night. I'm not going to go too far off onto that. I want to kind of stay here. But there's no way that I by myself could have pulled off last night. I can't sing a lick. I know nothing about technology. You give me an iPhone, I do the best that I can. I don't even know where the app store is sometimes. I probably drive Keith crazy. But their strengths aid in accomplishing the ministry for him. God provides others to surround you and help in accomplishing his will. You don't do it alone. Don't forget that. The other thing that I want to encourage you in is don't alienate yourself. What the enemy wants to do in challenging times is to force you to where you work alone. Reach out to other people. Go to them. Ask them. Share with them. Encourage them. This is a team effort. We exalt our Lord, not just I. Now, the other thing that we see in verses 9 through 10, and this is going to be a little challenging, is simply this. God's hand will be upon those who look to his word and desire to live according to it. So, earlier I talked about how do we know that God's hand is upon us? Well, are you seeking his will and are you faithful to him? That's a great question. Are you seeking his will and are you faithful to him? This gets a little bit harder. How do you seek his will and how do you remain faithful to him? Well, you seek his will and remain faithful to him by looking to his word and desiring to live according to to it. Do you see how that connects? We continue here, and essentially it says in verse 9, 
he began his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. uh, For the gracious hand of God was on him. For Ezra, don't miss this, had devoted him, early morning, sorry, devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. He devoted himself to it and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So I want to ask you this. In wanting to do God's will, if God were to raise you to leadership, if in being faithful to him, the key to this is what? Devoting yourself to his word. Looking into his word. But not just looking into his word, then allowing his word to permeate your heart to where you want to live according to it. Not legalistically, not hierarchically, but submissively, as a servant would, to aid God's people. And so friends, what I want to ask you is this. In God's calling, in your desire to have the hand of God upon you, wondering where it is, wanting to seek the Lord's will, and wanting to be faithful to Him. My question is this. Examine your heart. How much time are you in His Word? In His Word, how much time does it permeate your heart to where it draws you to want to live according to it? How much does it sanctify you? How much does it set you apart from the world and more toward God? That's sanctification. That's moving away from worldly desires, which is what got the people of God in trouble in the first place. God doesn't expect perfection. I'm not saying that we all now have to be in the Word 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But lovingly, are we in the Word? And when we're in the Word, when those hard passages come, when those moments when God is speaking and it's obviously clear that God is working and molding and shaping and breaking us from our ugliness, our sin, our self-desire, our self-righteousness, are we going to pass it up in pride and just tick it off the box? Or are we going to allow it to break us and mold us and shape us into the image of our Savior, Jesus, so that we can accomplish his will by having the hand of God on us? A heart check. When you experience hardship, do you look into his word and desire to live according to it? Or do you keep pursuing worldly wisdom and the desires of the world. Friends, I'm not saying that you can't go out and talk to other people. I'm not saying that you can't go out and get advice from others, but what I want to ask you is, what's your go-to first? Is it that you go to other friends in the world, and then after a while, maybe you look into Scripture? Or is it that you go to Scripture and say, Lord, what is it that you want? Or you find a person who's godly and say, this is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I don't get. And allow them to encourage you. And allow that to be what permeates you and molds you more into the image of our Savior. One of our challenges 
that I see so much in the world today is these self-help books. Please hear me, I'm not against self-help, but what I'm asking is, is you can't help yourself if you don't have a savior. Please hear me there. We cannot help ourselves if we don't have a savior. Better yet, we are helpless without a savior. The other thing too, and this hit me, and, and, and this is, uh, it's just funny how God, God's work, it's a reality check. I was writing this, I saw something on Facebook, um, and it hit me. It was just at the right time, because it moves forward into this message. You'll notice that the title of this sermon is The Visit, dot, 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 because the visit of Ezra continues toward the end of the book. And I don't want to give the end of the book away, but what we see at the end of the book is repentance of God's people. Repentance is God's people saying, we're turning away from the world and we're turning toward you. We're asking you to be at the center of our lives. And so in this, one of the things that hit me was, I, we, can lead you the best we can. We can encourage you and do everything that we can to try to encourage you toward God. But friends, here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say this lovingly, but quite seriously. You got to drink. You have to drink. We can lead you to the water. We can encourage you, but you've got to drink. It's your responsibility. It's your relationship with Jesus. It's your faithfulness to him, not mine, not Keith's, not this church's. And so in this, one of the things that I find interesting is I read this and it hit me. Judas had the best pastor, the best leader, the best advisor, the best counselor, yet he failed. Judas had Jesus, yet he failed. So friends, sometimes the problem isn't the leadership or the church that you go to. Sometimes, lovingly, the problem is you. If your attitude or character doesn't change, or your heart does not transform, you will always be the same. And I'm going to give credit. It's Tina Meyer. She's a friend on Facebook. She popped this up, so I just want to make sure that I didn't come up with this. I don't know where she came up with it. I just saw it on Facebook, and it hit me. Why am I talking about this? Here's the deal. Who was Judas? Judas was one of the closest, most trusted disciples of Jesus. He was in charge of the treasury, right? Okay, now, Janetta, now, Janetta, you are not Judas. Okay, please, like, okay. But there is a level of trust in the treasurer, right? There is a level of intimacy in the treasurer for the finances of the operation of the church, right? 
This is the early church. Judas was the one that took care, essentially, of the money for those people. He had every opportunity to draw close to Jesus. Here's the other thing. I'm not Jesus, okay? Keith's not Jesus. We will fail you. But look at the attitude of Judas. He had everything there for him. He had every opportunity. He had every possibility. He had deep intimacy desired. And yet it was his attitude that caused him to fail. And so where am I going with this? Friends, there's a little bit of Judas in all of us, isn't there? And the reason that I'm bringing this up, it seems a little bit awkward at the end of this part of the passage. But mark this down, and what we're going to see as we get into the latter passages of Ezra is this mass repentance of God's people. And here's what I want to tell you is Ezra leads, Ezra moves, Ezra shows, Ezra points, Ezra encourages. But at the end of the day, Ezra is Ezra, and you are you, and the people of God are the people of God, and they are the ones who have their hearts transformed by him. So what I want to ask is simply this. Judas or Jesus? Judas or Jesus? Friends, during challenging times in life, how can I know that God's hand is upon me? First thing that I want to encourage you in is during challenges of life, challenging times of life, God raises up individuals to accomplish his will. We also know that God's hand will be upon those who seek the Lord's will and are faithful to him. The joy that we see is God will bring about others to surround you and aid you in accomplishing his will. But to know that God's hand is upon you, you need to what? Seek his will and be faithful to him. In order to do that, God's hand will be upon those who look to his word and desire to live according to it. Take home truth to kind of summarize this the best way that I can is during challenging times, may we trust the hand of God. May we trust the hand of God as we faithfully seek his will through studying his word and desiring to live according to it.